This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by Teach for America Kansas City, which believes teachers deserve to be celebrated and their voices elevated. Find out how you can join their movement of passionate educators in Kansas City by going to teachforamerica.org or find us on Twitter at TFA underscore KC or on Instagram at TFA KC. Some say computer coding is as crucial to kids' education these days as math and reading. Our teachers are skeptical. Plus, you hear it all the time, teaching is its own reward. But our teachers argue, yeah, but a little higher pay would be nice. Finally, in this current social justice moment, should teachers be teaching their kids to be woke? As one of our teachers puts it, hell yes. Those topics plus a summertime teachers these days on this brand new episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. We are back with a new episode. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned public radio journalist. And I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are on summer break. They're loose, footloose, and fancy free. And they've been kind enough to come back into the studio in the middle of their summer break. So let's introduce them. Luann Fox, what do you teach when you're not on summer break? I teach high school English. David Muhammad, what do you teach when you're not on summer break? International relations and economics. So we should say a day after this taping, you do start summer school. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Thought I'd remind you. And Jason Staliga, when you're not on summer break, what do you teach? Secondary honors and advanced science. So we have three high school teachers, all from... Schools here in the Kansas City metro area. Well, let's get to it. It's good to have you back. It's good to be back with a new episode. Let's start with our first topic. At a recent summit of technology leaders at the White House, Apple CEO Tim Cook said, and this is quoted by the New York Times, coding, that is computer coding, quote, should be a requirement in every public school. Indeed, schools' focus on coding has exploded in the past few years in no small part due to the efforts of the powerful nonprofit Code.org. This group, founded in 2012 by the Partovi brothers, Hadi and Ali, has deep pockets and impressive ambitions. The goal, get every student in every school in America a chance to learn computer science To that end, Code.org, according to the New York Times, has amassed a $60 million bank account with major donations from big Silicon Valley players like Facebook and Google. Its popular Hour of Code introductory coding lessons online have been given to an estimated 100 million students worldwide. Code.org has also provided training in computer science to some 57,000 teachers as well. Hadi Partovi argues computer science is akin to what physics was during the space race era of the 1950s and 60s. He talks in big Silicon Valley phrases. He's quoted as saying, coding is at least as essential a concept as photosynthesis. An Iranian immigrant himself who sold his startup at a young age for a reported $800 million, he argues Code.org is making the American dream possible for future generations of kids like him. But there are critics. Some researchers and educators see Code.org and the push for more computer science in classrooms more broadly as simply a push to help grow the talent pipeline for Silicon Valley. They say the professed need for more computer coders in the future is overblown and that schools are being given the burden of training, say, future Facebook employees. So let's go back to Tim Cook's contention, which I, started just a f- which I stated just a few moments ago. Coding should be a requirement in every public school. 
I have three high school teachers here. Um, theoretically, your students are about to set off onto looking for higher education and jobs and enter this swirling economic landscape. Coding should be a requirement. What do you think? Yes or no? Why or why not? I believe that students need to learn computer science, definitely, and I believe that should be compulsory. Um, coding is not the only valuable skill that's there, and I don't think the coding should be compulsory. I agree with, I agree with Luann. Um, you know, there is probably a fine group of students, a very narrow group of students, who would really enjoy that process of coding. So within a high school setting... Um, or even a middle school setting, you know, as we move to incorporate more STEM into the classroom, you know, offering that as an opportunity for them to develop. I've had several kids who've done the Hour of Code. They loved it. Um, a lot of them got really got interested in it. And by doing that Hour of Code, they would like to see more of that within the high school. Uh, but given just the broad range of students that we face every day in our classroom, um, teaching them how to code uh, may not be the best use of their time in the classroom. Not every student's interested in it, is what that, you're saying. That is Absolutely. correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that uh, it's a bit of an extreme when you look at the, the broad disparity of some students in certain areas. It's extreme saying that everyone needs to do it. Right. I think the you look at the disparity that some students are facing in this country, the time might be better spent um, you know, on other subject matters. Uh, and I think that the funding for it, could be spent in better ways. There's there's definitely a need for technology awareness and usage. But how many kids, or people for that matter, are going to be building websites? You know, um, and a lot of companies pay people to do that. But are you going to saturate the market to the point where it's undervalued? Um, so I think that it's a niche that's special, and it should stay that way. And to make it a norm, one is unrealistic. Um, because who's going to teach it at all? Are they going to teach it at all schools? Are going to have the the resources? And then the question is going to come from the public. Well, if we're spending this kind of money on this stuff, why can't we spend it on other things, right? So I think what happens, though, with these industries, because as educators, we've probably all seen, like, tons of ideas come through that are, like, big ideas that, that are going to change education and all of that. And some of them are really great in concept, but it's not like they're the only activity that can do that for kids right like trial and error and problem solving can be can be accomplished in other veins as well and they have been for many years so i think that sometimes i wonder who are they polling like who are they polling to figure out the desire for this because while there may be some need for it are there enough students who are interested Mm -hmm. even in it you know I, i have for every one or two kids in my class are interested in, and I have 20 others who really could care less. Mm-hmm. You know, so I wonder, like, are you going to force them to do it? You know, and how's that going to work out? Uh, interesting. I mean, that comment makes me think of some statistics that I pulled as I was kind of researching this topic. So AP Computer Science, the Advanced Placement Computer Science course, within that course, students can take a test at the end of that course. Um, still... Nationwide, AP computer science test takers make up a fraction of the number of kids who take the AP English Lit or AP World History test, for example. Um, I think at least based on the the most recent data, a little less than 50,000 students nationwide take the AP computer science test, whereas those other subjects are upwards of like Mm 300,000 students. Um, Still, that rate is going up over the last five years. Um, The rate of test takers has gone up by more than 100%. Still... Of those test takers, 78% of them are male Hmm. and only 13% of them are students of color. Hmm. Um, So 
Um, what yeah. you said, David, made me think like, so I, I guess who, who are the students that they are polling? Who are the students that mm-hmm. are showing aptitude? Right. And, and who is the, you know, who is getting the industry people excited about the idea of like right. expanding? Yeah. But on the other hand, you could say, well, this just shows that we need to expand computer science more. Yeah, computer science and access. But my district, every kid has a Mac Air. We're pretty, you know, substantially funded compared to some neighboring districts where there might be a computer lab in the whole building, you know, and kids go home and they don't have computers. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that we have to look at the big picture. Some of these schools don't even have AP classes offered. Period. Period. (laughs) Like at all. So then, you know, or you have kids reading below grade level. Well, do th- I mean, do things like Hour of Code, which seems to be at least um, a, a somewhat cost-effective way to at least mm-hmm. introduce the topic, do, do things like that offer a solution for cash-strapped districts or resource-poor districts? I, yeah, I believe so. Um, it's a way to get students who may not be interested in it otherwise or even know that they're interested. And it will That net will catch some of them, and that's great. It's just making that be a compulsory thing is what rubs me the wrong way. I might, I yeah, it might give you pause. I mean, 24 states, um, I think because of Code.org's pretty intensive lobbying and industry lobbying as well, 24 states now um, – allow computer science courses to count towards students' math and science graduation degrees. So that's, that's not requiring computer science, mm-hmm. but that's kind of integrating computer science right. into the larger math science system. Jason, you have an interesting story from your district about a computer science teacher um, who got wooed away by another mm-hmm. district, which it just kind of illustrates, uh, I guess, the situation that we're in right now just in terms of, of supply and demand <laughs> for computer science. Yeah, w- we had, unfortunately, a phenomenal teacher who had one of the best abilities to relate with our kids um, <clears throat> across all the demographics and ethnicities and race. And uh, uh, she was, she was um, so important in the development of Project Lead the Way uh, first team robotics. Um, She built it from the ground up, starting at the elementary level, uh, moved it to the middle school. Uh, We had it at the high school, but she really grew the program at the high school. Um, She went back to get a lot of career tech certifications so that she, so that as we moved through our MSIP cycle, we had the opportunity to uh, provide that to our kids in order to help with um, our points towards accreditation. And then this past year, uh, there was an opportunity for her to uh, move to the Kansas City, Missouri School District and kind of act as a coordinator uh, for STEM and for robotics in the district. And we lost her. Um, and with that, she got quite the healthy pay bump. Yeah. So, well, I, mean, it, I mean, it illustrates that there's – I mean, I guess it, may, it makes me wonder would there – if there is a, a, a push to add more computer science curriculum, are there enough teachers or individuals with a not only knowledge but passion mm-hmm. – to then meet the increased demand. I, I can't remember if this is correct, but we were in the middle of a conversation. If you have a business certification, um, I believe that allows you in the state of Missouri to teach computer science. Hmm. And which is not necessarily analogous. Which is not at all analogous <laughs> because if they don't have the skills or the background or the training in order to teach those courses, then what they're probably going to end up doing is finding modules uh, that they're going to show online in order for the kids to follow along hmm. without that you know, intense discussion 
that is so important to the learning of any subject. Interesting conversation. Um, I imagine we'll see more about this in the future. Our podcast today is sponsored by Teach for America Kansas City, which believes one day all children will have the opportunity to attain an excellent education. You can make an immediate impact on that mission in Kansas City. To find out how, visit teachforamerica.org. Find them on Twitter at TFA underscore KC and on Instagram at TFA KC. NPR recently featured the story of Sean Sheehan, Oklahoma's 2016 State Teacher of the Year. He had appeared in NPR's reporting the previous year. He was part of a group of educators running for legislative office in Oklahoma on the platform of providing more funding for public schools. Sheehan lost that political race, went back to teaching, and then at the end of this school year announced he was moving to Texas. Why? Higher pay. This is apparently a trend in Oklahoma. NPR reports thousands of teachers have left Oklahoma the past few years, fed up with the state's low pay, paltry resources, and cutbacks and other education-related services. For Sheehan, what are the numbers we're talking about? Well, he and his wife are both teachers, and he says in Oklahoma their take-home pay combined was $3,600 a month. They do have a daughter, and after all their bills, they say they're looking at typically about four dollars to $500 left over. He says by moving to Texas automatically, they're going to make $40,000 more per year combined. Mm. Now, that's where I want to set up our discussion in this NPR story, Oklahoma's current 2017 Teacher of the Year. Um takes a kind of dig at Sheehan. John Hazell says he would ask Sheehan if more teachers leave, who's going to teach Oklahoma's children? The way Hazell sees it, quoting the NPR story, you can't put a dollar amount on teaching children. It's a privilege that I've been doing for more than 30 years. Sheehan, the story says, disagrees slightly. He says he respects that idea, but also wants to get paid like a professional. We've talked about teacher pay on this show before, but casting it in this way, which side do you fall on? Is it a privilege to teach? doesn't really matter how much you get paid as long as you get paid enough to live. Or pay me like a professional. Pay me like the other people who have earned the same level of degrees in education that I've learned. And we're, we're winding up. We're getting ready. We're, uh, we're limbering up. We're stretching. <laughs> no, Luann wants to go first here. She's, no, she doesn't. <laughs> well, where do you guys fall? Pay me more or... It's it's a privilege to teach. It feels like you're not supposed to say pay me more, but I mean, who doesn't want to be paid like a professional? We are made to go to school um, the same amount of time as other professionals do. We have to jump through several kinds of hoops the way that other kinds of professionals have to do. Um, we've got several constituents that we <laughs> we need to answer to. Um, so yes, it would it would it would be nice to be paid like a professional. Uh, Jason, for your district, you are, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. So you you sit on the pension committee for the for the state of Missouri, state right? State of Missouri. Yeah, I'm yeah. a trustee for the public yeah. school retirement. So you system. you looked at this question through that angle. Um, I did a little bit, yeah. <laughs> um, I I was going to go just to David's point. My favorite argument by central office is you knew what you were getting into when you signed <laughs> up for this job, and that. That to me has always been a slap in the face. But that kind of that kind of echoes the sentiment of, yeah. you know, this is it's a it's a privilege to do this job. Mm-hmm. You get you know the reward of teaching yeah. kids is is, is remuneration is. enough. Yeah, from a from a retirement system perspective, <clears throat> uh, there is a lot of people in the world who have what we call pension envy. Uh, but I just went to a training last week, and we were discussing the idea of public versus private sector. And the um, the emphasis that they put on retirement, <clears throat> and in a public sector, 
uh, people tend to put more emphasis on the value of retirement than they do on salary. Um, in the private sector, it's the opposite. They actually put more value on salary than they do on retirement. <clears throat> and I was out hiking. There's a little, just a bit of a side, and someone came up to me and said, "It's not fair that my friend who worked in the public school for 30 years gets to take home the same amount of money that she made when she was working." When she's retired. Yeah, yeah, when she was retired, and I stopped and I had to. You did, how 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 do you address that question? So I actually asked that question, and the answer I got was. The following, and I think this is really good to think about, is that we defer compensation as teachers. Um, although we may not necessarily want to take a lower salary per se, uh, in most states across the country, there are defined benefit plans that are offered to educators upon retirement. And so although we may take less money now, we know that in the future, uh, when we retire at 55 or 60 or whatever it is, and we live an extra 30 years, we're going to be guaranteed that payment the rest of our lives. Um, and so, and someone said not anymore, and that's true. There are states going to hybrid plans, et cetera, moving, trying to move towards DC plans, which is why you see teachers so upset when when their pension gets went, cut or yeah. the promises afterwards, right. because there are I think fifteen states in uh, the union that do not get Social Security. Like Missouri, we don't get Social Security, so we're putting fourteen and a half percent of our paycheck into retirement every month as teachers, and our district is matching 14.5% into So it's, a very, it's a very generous pension. So it's, yeah. And so you, you do, there's a calculation, et cetera, but you know, roughly if, you've, if you fully retire, you'll get about 75% of the money that you made, yeah. and it takes six to seven years to recoup all of the money that you put into the system. David, you're about to explode. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to wait till I'm 65 to enjoy my life. Right. I don't want to wait till I'm 65 to go on vacation. Like, I shouldn't have to tell my daughter, hey, look, look, I know it's rough right now, but when I retire, we're going to be balling. Like, that. what world are we talking about here? Like, I educate and we educate the youth of America, right? Like, you guys place this value on education, but then you pay us like you don't value it. It is hypocrisy. It is complete hypocrisy. And we don't have it. And if we say it, you know, then it sounds like we don't appreciate working with the kids. I love my job. That's the only thing that I, that's kept me going there getting paid like that is because I do love the kids. And yes, it is a privilege. But you better believe that I also know that I put in a lot of work more than it gets seen by the casual eye. And if I don't work that hard, then other teachers will tell me that I'm a bad teacher. Mm -hmm. Right. And the, the administrators and superintendents who get paid six figures and got get raises will criticize me and fire me if I do anything, post anything on social media that's outside of professional acting. What other profession has to do with that? The question for me is, where does that money come well, from? Well, that's exactly what I was going to ask, right? Oh. So, the, uh, so I hear that a lot, yeah. right? Pay teachers more. Yeah. Where would that money come from? Money's going to have to come from taxes, and it's going to have to come from... Local property lo taxes. Local, local property taxes or increase in state taxes. And so then now you, so now now you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because if you're living in an area that is Absolutely. of low socioeconomic area or lower socioeconomic area, you now are saying to the constituents of that district, I need you to pay more in taxes because we want to give teachers raises, and you know the, you know for people who don't really focus on school budgets because I'm a geek and I walk out on this stuff, uh, but uh, you know sixty to seventy percent, fifty to seventy percent of all budgets go to teacher salaries and benefits. And so there's only really, you know, 30% that go towards other resources, et cetera. So, you know, how do you tow the line? You know, this is what we talk about in terms of in our district when we talk about budgeting is, you know, how do you tow the line to provide teachers a cost of living adjustment or to add money to the base 
while at the same time justifying to the to the constituents that are around that we're gonna we're gonna expect you to pay a little more, whether it's in property or sales tax, et cetera, so that we can give teachers a higher raise. I'm not against the idea mm-hmm. of of um, of teachers making more money. Uh, I would love to make more money. That being said, you know, in terms of a whole society, how much pressure can we really put more on the members of our community? I think the problem, I mean, one, I say, okay, well, you guys use property taxes to build these stadiums that, you know, but I won't go there because I watch the games too. But I think that the problem is that there's such a, a gap, right? Like if you're either a teacher or you're an administrator or you're a superintendent, right? And the pay gap between the three are really broad. And so if I'm a really, really good teacher, I'm torn because I love being in the classroom. I make an impact. But the only way I can make more money is to be an administrator or a superintendent. And that pulls me out of that pulls great teachers out of the classroom. Right. They're often incentivized to or encouraged. Absolutely. To. Yeah. Absolutely. And so then you lose these skillful people and the like, OK, then take some of that money away from those positions. Like, do they really have to be making two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year? You know, to I mean, I'm not trying to, criticize, but still, like, you know, I know that some there's great superintendents and great administrators out there. But I would say at least decrease the gap where, OK, take away a hundred thousand dollars of theirs. I don't need to make a million dollars, but I'd like to make, you know, 70. You'd know, like 70, to be comfortable. Yeah, I'd like to be comfortable. Or I like, have a standard of living that allows absolutely. you to Absolutely. And I think that it's just like, to live. Why can, how can you, do they get criticized? Do they get as stringent as... A certification process as we do and ridicule it if they don't do a good job like we do and do they deserve what are they doing that deserves that much more money than the educators who are in the trenches every single day uh before we got on air we were talking Luann so I wanted to ask at what point could you envision if at all a revolution. a social protest movement a revolution <laughs> if it were led by teachers agitating for a higher pay. And you you brought up some interesting points before we actually started taping, right? Like because you actually see some barriers to this. You just don't you just don't have teachers that are all of uh like minds. I mean, you know, uh, as like-minded as they are is probably just to trying to to teach kids and and have them have the kids move. But um you've got a a group of teachers, nothing against them. You just have a group of teachers who do not depend on the living the way that many teachers do and and this would be that segment of society um, who are married to spouses who are more than comfortable and these are educated individuals that are like well I'm educated and this is a thing I can do and it's a thing I enjoy doing and so they don't even pay attention to what they're being mm-hmm. paid because mm-hmm. it, it's really just extra stuff mm-hmm. and it's stuff that keeps them you know busy and again it doesn't I have friends um, in this boat so I'm not taking anything away from them but it's just there's no incentive for them when push comes to shove to join any kind of mass movement that's going to be, we really need to have this to to make us, um, to guard against deprofessionalization. Yeah, well, I guess mm-hmm. the, the, mo- the most high-profile example of this in recent years was in Chicago, right? I mean, where, where mm-hmm. teachers did um, really, really fight. Um, so, I mean, I mean, even at this table, we have individuals in different financial situations, even though you get paid roughly the same amount of money, you three have solidarity with each other, but it, it seems like it, it, it's harder to kind of build that solidarity mm-hmm. um, across the yeah. profession. I'm, I'm, going back to when I was younger, the value of being a teacher has changed. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Oh, the, the value of, you know, you did this wrong in the classroom, the teacher was right, mm-hmm. why did you do this? Mm. To the flip side of, 
you did this in the classroom, and it's, are you sure? Right. My, mm. my favorite is the administrator who comes in and says, well, the student said you, you did this. Did you, did you really do this? Or I said the student did this, and the student said they really didn't do that. Did, did the student really do that? Mm. And it's like, you know, I'm not going to create a situation that's going to get me in trouble. I'm going to I'm going to relay the truth mm-hmm. to you because there is a problem going on within the classroom, and I think in terms of communities trying to get this this mass revolution, you know, this a quote unquote walk on Washington for teachers, that it's going to have to take more of a a belief from the community that teachers hold that stature that they once held um, many years so ago. Not, so not even a, so not even. Um it's not only a problem, solidarity across the profession, but you're saying even if you were able to march on Washington. Mm-hmm. Would um, they listen to us? <laughs> would, they listen, would society care? Would society support you? They'd yeah. probably say we were complaining. But there were whiners. There were whiners. Well, you guys did you summer know. break. Oh. Yeah. And I, mm-hmm. I, I read something once. This was years ago. This was, this was before um, the conscious you know, emergence of Black Lives Matter and police brutality, uh, racial and all that. But something that said... Um, Policemen or uh, police persons, um, teachers and priests are kind of all in the same kind of category. Whereas if you've got, say, a bad egg, you've got like somebody who's doing something wrong, that becomes the media darling. It's sensationalized in a way that like insurance adjusters who would do the same crime, that wouldn't be in the media. It just would not garner that much attention. And if you're a parent in the community and and you hear this about a teacher, it does. It makes you it makes you doubt. You're like, oh my gosh, these kids that I'm sending off, I want my teachers to do the best thing that they can. But you hear about one bad one, and it kind of taints it all for the mm-hmm. rest of us. And it's like those professions seem to get it the most. It's like if they do a bad thing, somehow it's worse than anybody else doing that bad thing. Mm. Yeah, and that man, that makes me think. We talked about like, okay, how do we pay for teachers? And it's from property taxes. But property values go up when you have good schools, right? And people move into areas because of good schools. You can have one good teacher at a school and people are like, I want my kid to go to that school, right? So we do have this ingrained value in education, right? Like we recognize that it's important, but then we want the teachers who are doing the work to sacrifice so that I don't have to pay more in taxes or, you know, so that they're not living at the same level as me. As you know, because I'm a doctor or a lawyer, <laughs> and I don't know, like it's just interesting to me. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Um, we've had that conversation before, probably will not be the last time that topic in some form or another comes up. Our final topic for today is inspired by another uh, NPR story we saw this week. It was called Summer Reading List for Your Woke Kid. It contains titles like a picture book for little kids called A is for Activism. That's pretty straightforward. You get it. F is for feminism, by the way, so on and so forth. G is for grassroots organizing. Um, another book on that list is <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> yeah, another book on that list is a hit YA novel, The Hate That You Give. Uh, this book garnered a lot of attention when it was um, contracted and then written. It's about a high school girl's struggles after watching her friend get shot and killed by the police. This reading list made me wonder... Um, not necessarily about other so-called woke books, but about the concept of woke itself. It's used here in a pretty accepted, contextualized way. Reading for your woke kid as if it's expected these days that a lot of kids are woke or should be woke. The term itself, woke or stay woke, has been around longer than just our current moment. Erica Badu used the phrase, I stay woke, in a famous 2008 song. And even the New York Times Magazine in the 1960s used the word woke in a cartoon lampooning New York beatniks who appear to be appropriating black culture. 
still today, woke is largely assumed to mean something like um, aware of awake to social justice, um, social injustice. Um, it's got a lot of different definitions, and even the definitions of woke itself have been argued about, and who can use the term woke and who cannot. That's also been debated as well. We won't get into that debate so much, but I guess I wanted to ask, as educators, um, do you see it as your responsibility to have your students be woke when they leave your class? One of the charges from uh, the NEA last year was to talk specifically about social justice and institutional racism. Hmm. And after our leadership forum um, last February, um, we were charged to go back to our classroom and hold a discussion with our kids. And the question they posed to us was, what role will you play in advancing racial justice in your classroom? Hmm. And so I did this with my older kids, uh, my, soft, my juniors and seniors mostly, although we had one day of conversation, but we did about three days of roundtables talking about racial justice in society uh, and within our own school community. And what did they see and, and how were they affected uh, by conversations or words or social media hmm. um, just for the awareness of it, uh, not only for the students that are around them, for our black kids talking to our white kids, for our white kids talking to our black kids, our gay kids talking to straight kids, straight kids to gay kids, um, but just having that opportunity for them to share their thoughts in an extremely safe space. Hmm. Um, and it was really powerful for me. Uh, to learn what they thought uh, in in their own from their own lives and uh, from their own. So, Jason, past, yeah. did you get a sense? Just curious. Um, did the students all sort of know what that was, or did there have to be a lot of teaching of to the other students? Um, what is social injustice? Because it's such a broad term. I don't. Do these kids kind of get it, or did they? Have I think. To learn? I think at least from at least from my kids, there there there's a they move together. From, from elementary school to middle school to high school. And so I would say about 70% of these kids, once they move into middle school, kind of come together. And there a lot of them live in the same neighborhoods and they, they, are, they undergo the same plight. And so it's not necessarily a stretch, per se, for them to be able to look out into society and say, hey, that happens in my own neighborhood or in my own community. Uh, the best part about the conversation is if you have kids who are, who are living in the, the southern, more affluent area, that may not necessarily witness what our kids are, you know, living through in the eastern part of our district, that that kind of opens up their eyes to them and it opens up dialogue. And the best thing we can do is, you know, as teachers is to, you know, we can't change them, but we can make them think and confront, you know, who mm. they are as, as young adolescents. Uh, Luann and David, do you feel a charge to have your kids be woke? Absolutely. I think... Um you know, I know that the the idea of being woke, there's varied opinions on it. Like, does it mean that they have to think a certain way? And if you're not in that vein, then you're not really woke. And that's going to always be subjective. Um, and as teachers, we have to be careful, too, to not force our opinions upon um, the, the students because they're very impressionable and their parents will call and you don't want that. But at the same time, like, I think we live in a time that's, it's so there's so much coming at these kids and there's so much going on with social media and what's what they're seeing and they spend more time in school than anywhere else you know and uh that's an environment you know how many other environments do they have to be around a group of other highly charged motivated thought provoked people you know in a really small insulated environment and i think that's a great opportunity to at least have the conversation, you know, even if you don't, they don't agree with you, give them a space to speak. Because if not, then that turns into emotions that go unchecked. Um, they can either go one way or the other, positively or negatively. But we have, I mean, it's, 
we're in a society of public schools where it's a social justice environment. I think that that's the perfect place for them to have that. And you lose that opportunity if you look at it like, well, I only have to talk about curriculum. You know, the kids want to talk about this stuff. They just don't have a space to do it. Yeah. Luann, what are your thoughts? I mean, do you, you have to uh, toe that line of, of wanting to engage with these big social justice issues, but yeah. also feeling like you don't want to be uh, too political? I don't think that being too political would be that much of a problem once we actually know what that is. And that was that that was to my question earlier to Jason. I'm, I'm just I'm thinking that there are so many students who think they know what that is, but mm-hmm. they're not really sure because what they're taught in um, social science classes would be like, this is what happened at Stonewall. Look at the footage. This mm-hmm. is what happened in in on day whatever in, in uh, civil rights era videos that, that they're watching. But it's really what microaggressions are um, mm-hmm. as well. And some students know what that word is. A lot of students will say, what, they'll just look at you like, what is that word? Mm-hmm. And I think you really do have to teach them because if it really is being aware of what that is to treat somebody else um, with less than the dignity and the respect that the person deserves simply by virtue of the fact of being a person, then the students need to be aware of it. Um, I think students can be ignorant about, like, hurting another because um, they don't really internalize the lessons of Scout and To Kill, to kill a Mockingbird. I know they, they know that Papa Attica says um, you've got to walk in somebody else's shoes, and they all understand that when they're freshmen, but it's you sometimes directly have to talk to a kid about, like, when you say or do, even if it's a minor thing, it can hurt this particular student over here. And I think they need to be aware of that. You three at the table, you you clearly all um, not only agree with each other, but when you think back to the, the NPR reading list, you know, a book like A is for Activism, like, you, you're, you're cheering the spirit of that book, right? right. Like, you, you, you like the idea and theory behind that. Um, what if there's a book, you know, Tea is for Tea Party, you know? I mean, and, and even, that, I mean, that's just something I made up, but there's even, I mean, like, conservative radio and TV hosts like Glenn Beck and Bill O'Reilly have written kids' books yeah. um, with a conservative uh, slant and, and viewpoint uh, that celebrate um, their viewpoints and, and things like, you know, free market capitalism right. and, um, and, you know, and, and their view of American history. Um, and so I wonder, where does... Um, because some people would see a book like A, a is for Activism and, and call it indoctrination. Yeah. Um, and, and I imagine you might even have parents yeah. who, who push back against things that you've taught in class. So I, I guess how, how do you toe that line and how do you square that intellectually? I mean, we can look at it from a pure capitalism standpoint, right? Like, okay, what actions or what uh, ideologies that are pushed are going to create a better society that creates better working citizens? Okay, so if you are you run a company, what kind of citizens do you want working for you? You want the time to get along with each other and teach each other, treat each other humanely, right? So if it's an ideal that is going to cause social disruption and social divide, that's not political, you know? And so I have a necessity as a human being to teach humane behavior. And if something is inhumane and teaching, treating people unjustly, then I'm going to speak out against it. Right. So I don't have a problem with a tea party, but if they stand for something that is going to eradicate social justice, then I have to speak out against it. I think we need to be careful, too, as, as educators um, to not push in one direction or push in another direction. And what I mean by that is, is that we need to 
have a greater picture of what's really happening. So mm-hmm. if I read A for Activism, I better read that Tea Party book, right? Mm-hmm. I, be- I better be able to understand the dichotomy that exists between the two. Absolutely. And I need to be very careful um, as not to censor um, their ability to have a development of thought as they're moving forward. Right. Um, because, you know, That's our job as teachers is not to push an agenda. Our job as teachers is to give them the opportunity to critically think mm-hmm. and allow them to develop their Absolutely. own mindset. I mean, I'll never forget one of the most powerful days of my teaching career was I I was able to um, host a Confederate flag debate that, you know, we put on YouTube and, you know, it really spread. But we had this about among students. Yeah, it's like 150 kids smashed into my classroom and they had a two hour debate over the Confederate flag. Mm-hmm. Some kids thought they were for it, some against it. They were civil. Uh, it, it got heated at times, but nothing malicious. And they walked out of there feeling like they got to voice their opinion. And they, you know, and I think that that's it's healthy. You know, we we have to stop being so politicized that we say you can't say this or you can't read this or you can't talk about this. That just creates more division. You know, and it's okay. We just have to give them the tools to navigate through all of it. Do you feel so? This is another concept that I was thinking of, right? So this idea of woke. It's obviously very prominent nowadays in our current political moment. But you you could think back to an earlier generation, like let's say when, you know, to your point, Luann, you mentioned it earlier, the book To Kill a Mockingbird was written, you know, in the 1960s. Um, if the term woke had been around, you might have considered To Kill a Mockingbird a woke book mm-hmm. <laughs> back in the 1960s. But now it's, it's actually, it's a very kind of almost... Uh, boring part of our year-to-year curriculum. It's an accepted part. You know, we, we read it every year. It's kind of, ha- has a book like that kind of lost its its political edge? And are some of the things that, and, and discussions that we're having now, 10, 20, 30 years from now, going to seem, I don't know, seen in a different light? Hmm. Is that for Louis? Oh, I mean, it's for anyone. Yeah. I don't, that's yeah. kind of scary, right? Like, if mm-hmm. the stuff that's now trigger triggering people is like kindergarten then that means like really bad stuff has to be happening 20 30 years from now you know hopefully we look at this stuff and say it woke us up right and then yeah and, and i think in terms of the book and and just the importance that it that has led in the further discussions that we've had is you know the civil rights movement was 50 years ago and we're still struggling with acceptance um within our own country and then and now we have now we have the gay movement and we have same sex marriage and that's going to continue to be a struggle over the course of time as people begin to develop and this trans sense. we never and we trans. never talked about trans stuff um, on and, a scale years ago yeah and so now we have this whole element of acceptance and in 50 years it's passed it's a half of a century and we're still having similar issues we're still having the same types of dialogue we're still having the same types of of um of discussions and you know what worries me the most is that you know 50 years from now right you know are we still going to be sitting around this panel some of us bald some of us gray um still having the same type of discussion and so i don't know if the relevance of the book will ever subside but the influence of the message when will it ever really seep into the minds of americans do you feel like you're on the right side of history 
Hell yeah. <laughs> is, there, is there a teacher out there that doesn't feel like they're on the right side I, of history, though, regardless like, of man, their political beliefs? You know, maybe this pulls in the whole teacher pay thing, but, man, that's what, I mean, you got to feel like that if you're going to wake up every day and go into these trenches and work yeah. with these kids in this environment. You know, like, they come at us. I will never forget the feeling, the emotional feeling that I felt in that building the day after the election. No, neither will I. Neither I mean, it was, I. Mm-hmm. I had kids crying. Yep. You had kids who were afraid to speak. The tension was so heavy. You would have thought, like, maybe someone got assassinated or something. Like, I hadn't felt that since we had a kid who passed away in the building. I hadn't felt that type of a feeling. I hadn't felt that since 9-11. And it lasted for a long time. Yeah, it wasn't a day. It wasn't the day after. It was weeks after. Yeah, and I mean, like, I felt like, okay, I'm here for a reason. Like, and I have to to help navigate through this. Mm -hmm. Because the kids can't learn. They, They don't care about curriculum right now like it does not matter so we got to figure out how to combat this you know so well thanks for sharing uh normally we end our episodes with a segment we call kids these days you guys have not taught kids for a while you're in the middle of summer break so it's hard to do that so instead for now at least until teachers uh, go back and see students again which we should say for david if i didn't mention this already he is, Tomorrow. Te- <laughs> he is teaching summer school starting the, the day after this taping. Um, but we're modifying kids these days to uh, teachers these days. That is what's trending with you, your family and friends. What are you into for this summer? Um, what do you got? Jason, start. What are you into? I'm into traveling. Oh, I'm, I was gone 21 of 26 days in a row. Nice. And uh, for me, you know, I, I always tell people that you can't, you can't see the world through a picture. You can only see it through your own eyes. And so I charge everyone to get out, take a walk around your neighborhood if that's the best you can do. Uh, Maybe you can't travel across the country, but go off and see a place that you've never seen before and take in the scene and take in the emotion and create a new memory for yourself. And where did you go this time? Uh, I went uh, backpacking through Glacier National Park uh, and the Grand Tetons. David, what are you Uh, into these days? Kids movies. I just saw (laughs) Despicable Me 3, which is awesome. Um, that was my daughter's first time in a theater, and then I just we watched Moana last night, and I'm like, all the songs get stuck. In, they're so catchy. Yeah, they're so catchy. Yeah, I've so. got I've got the Moana song stuck in my yeah. head too. Believe me. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, and Luann, what are you into these days? Well, starting tomorrow, I'll be working for a couple weeks um, with the Greater Kansas City Writing Project. We've got um, some student writing camps coming up in um, various places in the city and uh, the writing camp is about getting students together and and promoting um, telling personal stories uh, for you know to help yeah, like break this down is cross some district right I mean like, these are students absolutely from all it's cross district and it's cross area. state yeah, yeah it's all around the metro area so um, getting some students together and uh, teaching them basically to be vulnerable um, modeling that ourselves getting some live storytellers in you can't step away you can't uh, you can't get away <laughs> from teaching English and writing that part's <laughs> that part's really cool because I'm not grading any papers yeah, so well, I really right. enjoy that. Yeah. Oh, well, that will do it for this episode of No Wrong Answers. So we should say, as we always do, Teach for America, Kansas City is the underwriter of this podcast, but No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control. What our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. You can like us at Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard today, subscribe, leave a review, keep the conversation going. Thanks to our teachers this week in the middle of summer. 
They were nice enough to come in, Luann Fox, David Muhammad, and Jason Staliga. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. I'm Kyle Palmer, and remember, kids, even in summer, be nice to your teachers. Be nice to your teachers.